When we first started the study, it was a basic chart that I gave you. Uh, this one I gave you, it's got a little more detail to it. I like this one. I like all kinds of charts. You know me, I'm a chart guy. Uh, and I like this chart. I think it's got a lot of good information in it and should be helpful to you as you start picturing uh, the book of Acts from a very high view. I thought it was interesting up at the top where it broke it up between Acts of Peter and Acts of Paul. I perhaps have heard that before but haven't really thought about that. Uh, too much, personally. Uh, do you know when the last time is we hear of Peter in the book of Acts? We've long since passed it. The last mention of Peter in the book of Acts is at the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. The last time we hear of Peter is in chapter 15, and Acts has 28 chapters. Isn't that interesting? So Peter just kind of fades off the scene there. And it's all about Paul's journeys. And you can see as you're looking at that chart, perhaps, there in front of you, we are getting ready to do chapter 23. So we're far down the, the line there, and we've got all these interactions with Felix, Festus, Agrippa, uh, as Paul's making his way to Rome. So we're going to be dealing with a lot of the personal uh, trials of Paul in the coming weeks as we finish out the book. But... Uh, before we get started here, uh, looking into the Word of God, why don't I say a prayer for us, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you so much for this day that you've given us. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that you've given us salvation in Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who worked through the men that we read about, the men and women in the book of Acts. We have that Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would empower us as you empowered them, that you would give us boldness as you gave them boldness, and that we would be equipped in our hearts and in our minds to uh, take the gospel out into the culture and one by one do our part in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom that has been uh, announced through the work of Christ. Lord, thank you so much. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, um, do you remember, all the way back last week, looking at chapter 22, what was going on? What was going on in the book of Acts uh, last week? And you can even use your chart as a little cheat if you want, even though I don't think it'll help you that much. It's a stairway. Uh, I don't think any of you remember chapter 22 for a stairway, but uh, what's going on? Uh, 21, 22, 23. It's all kind of connected. Here come a bunch of people. Paul was arrested where? Where was he? At the temple. In Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that's right. In, at the temple in Jerusalem. He was on his way there. He had been going through the Greek islands and some other places, and he wanted to be in Jerusalem for what event? Why did he want to be in Jerusalem? For? Yeah, he wanted to be in Jerusalem to celebrate with... Uh, Jews, but also in light of the gospel. So what I just handed to the uh, 50 of you who just came in, I gave you a uh, chart of the book of Acts, just as a reference uh, there to have on hand. We're not going through that chart this evening, but hopefully it's helpful to you as you consider this book. We're in chapter 23 tonight, though we're going to start in chapter 20. So yeah, he was in Jerusalem, he was arrested uh, there by when he was at the temple. He was in Jerusalem going to the temple. Now I want us to look in chapter 20, starting in verse 22. This is when he was in Ephesus, which was in Asia. He was speaking to, and actually wasn't in Ephesus, he was in 
at the island of Miletus, meeting with the elders from Ephesus near Asia. And he says that he's going to be leaving and they're not going to see him again. And let's remember what he says here, starting at verse 22 of Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 22, Paul says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He didn't know what was going to happen to him except for what in, in uh, Jerusalem? Chains and tribulations. And that is what has happened. Look at chapter 21. Look down to verse 31. This is Paul in Jerusalem. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Would someone read verses 31 to 36 of chapter 21? Okay. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all persons were seen. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped being Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when, he could, uh, and when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, away with him. All right. Imprisonments and afflictions, right? <laughs> That's what's going on. It says back in verse 31 that they wanted to do what to him? Kill him. Away with him. That was the, the Jews. Jews wanted to kill him. And it says that uh, the soldiers and the centurions came down. And who were the soldiers and centurions? They weren't Jews. Romans. And did they really care for Paul that much? Oh, no, not really. So you got the religious people who want to kill you. you got the government that doesn't really care if you live or die. And there he is in the middle. In chapter 22 that Mark covered last week is Paul interacting with these two groups here. And he plays the citizenship card at the end of verse 22. They're getting ready to beat him. And he says, now wait a second. Is this what you're supposed to do to a Roman citizen? <laughs> uh, he plays that card. Look at verse 30 with me. Uh, this is where we ended last week. Paul had just declared he's a Roman citizen by birth. They were not allowed to be doing what they were doing. The very last verse of chapter 22, it says, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is the tribune, it's a single guy, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the Roman tribune, the leader there of that area, he decided that the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, should hear out what Paul has to say in a formal manner. The Romans started to beat Paul, and they were uh, abusing him, and he said, now wait a second, I'm a citizen, and in Rome you weren't allowed to beat a guy uh, before all this took place. If you're a Roman citizen, then you had the privilege. You weren't allowed to uh, be treated as such, or they weren't allowed to treat you as such uh, before such a formal 
uh, hearing took place. And so Paul says, wait a second, I'm a citizen. And the guy, the Roman guy who was there with them said, well, I am too, and it cost me a lot of money. Because back in those days, they were selling citizenship. And Paul says, oh, okay, well, I was born a Roman citizen, meaning his father was a Roman citizen. And they said, whoa, okay, well, um, that, uh, that's a game changer. And so now the Roman government working with the Jews again, says, let's have a trial. And they put Paul in front of the Sanhedrin. And Paul had to figure out this whole kangaroo court on the fly because this wasn't a legit, honest hearing. Of course, they want him dead. The Jews want Paul dead. Remember, they were seeking to kill him. So guys who were just seeking to kill you, would you want them to be your judge and jury? <laughs> Not so much. That's the situation Paul finds himself in. And we're going to see in this chapter, chapter 23, Paul does some interesting things. He says some interesting things that seem kind of like weird and not super Christian. <laughs> and it makes you wonder, what's going on here? Well, let's remember all the context and let's think through it together. Looking at verses 1 to 5. Chapter 23, 1 through 5. Someone want to read those for us here tonight? 1 to 5. Paul looked straight at, <clears throat> straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. For the high priest and highest order those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed law. <laughs> you sit there to judge me. You sit there to judge me according to the law. Yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare insult God's high priest? All replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it was written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. All right. So uh, we're going to see lots of things here in this passage. Uh, one of the things I want you to remember contextually is that Paul has been out of the Jewish game as far as being all in in the Jewish world for over a decade now. So Paul has been a Christian for 10 plus years, and he doesn't know all the ins and outs of Judaism like he would have before. It's unclear as to whether Paul was saved before or after Ananias became high priest, the one that we're reading about in verse 2. Um, but it's quite possible and perhaps even likely that Paul was saved before this man became high priest. And so Paul wasn't around all of these things like he would have been before. And uh, that's just something to keep in mind. And he says here in the very first verse, he has an opportunity to speak. And the first thing he says is, brothers, take note of that. Because he's not talking to Christians, is he? He's talking to Jews, brothers. And he makes clear, first, first off, right from the beginning, that he has a good conscience. That he has lived his life, and perhaps your translation says, I've lived as a citizen, or I've behaved as a citizen. That's really what the meaning has behind it. He's conducted himself as a citizen before God in good conscience up to this day. That he uh, has no guilt on his conscience for the way that he has conducted himself in the Roman Empire, how he has conducted himself in the areas where the Jews were ruling, where the Jews had influence. He's, he's got a good conscience before God. Now, of course, the Jews weren't really seeking to find out if he was innocent or guilty, were they? Because in their mind, he was already what? Yeah, guilty. So, when he says, 
I'm innocent, essentially, they say, yeah, punch him in the face. <laughs> okay? Uh, just strike him right in the mouth. Slap him across the lips because he's guilty. Remember, kangaroo court. They haven't had any trial, really, here. It says Ananias, the high priest, the guy who's supposed to be the exemplar of holiness and the exemplar of goodness. He says to one of his uh, guys standing there, strike him on the mouth. So Ananias disagreed with Paul about him having a good conscience. And, uh, and that's quite interesting. You can read about Ananias in uh, Josephus. Do you guys remember who Josephus is? Historian. Historian. First century Jewish historian. So uh, his book of antiquities, his book of wars, those are very helpful to have in times like this because you can go to the index in the back and look up Ananias. And Ananias is like the name John back then. There were a lot of Ananiases. And so you, you find the right one. And what you read about this guy is he was corrupt through and through, as you could suspect from this one verse that we have, have read this evening. Uh, corrupt guy, rich guy. In fact, uh, he would have his henchmen go and grab some of the tithes that were meant for other priests uh, to support them and bring them back to his house. That's the kind of show Ananias was running. And he was a very pro-Roman government guy. Ananias was uh, make Rome great again, you know, the empire's great. Uh, he wore the hat, the whole shebang. And what's interesting is toward the end of his reign as high priest, do you know what happened in A.D. 66 between the Jews and the Romans? A.D. 66. That was a, yeah, it was a war. The Jewish-Roman uh, war. The Jews and the Romans were fighting. And Ananias, high priest of the Jews, pro-Roman. That's an interesting situation to be in. Well, in the middle of this war, he had a bunch of Jews who wanted to kill him. <laughs> and he ended up hiding himself in an aqueduct and was slain there along with his brother. And his son, who was uh, used a lot in his quote-unquote ministry to make himself richer, his son Eleazar ended up seeking revenge for his father, going after his father's murderers. Just a real nasty family uh, that was all about wealth and was all about power. And you know, his life ended in an aqueduct. So that tells you something about his life. And Paul, of course, says, makes this statement uh, after he has Paul smacked in the face. Paul says, well, you know what? God's uh, going to strike you. He's going to smack you. And here, just about eight years later, give or take, that's what happened in that aqueduct. God struck him down. And so, uh, interesting guy, interesting family, and the Lord, of course, eventually did take care of him. But let's consider that response there in verse 3. After he had Paul smacked, what do you guys think of Paul's response here? He's a Christian. He's on trial. He gets smacked in the face and he says, I forgive you. <laughs> no, he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. How do we process that? <laughs> is that Christ-like or unchristlike? Okay. Well, let me read to you a verse. That's right. He did. Um, it, uh, it says in the New Testament, and it's actually prophesied in the Old Testament, that Jesus was like a sheep led to the slaughter. And being reviled, he did not revile in return. 
Is Paul reviling in return? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Ananias uh, would say, what are you doing? And in fact, his men are standing right there. Hey, uh, you can't talk that way to this guy. Uh, well, keep your finger here, but turn with me to John 18. John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 19 to 23. Jesus on trial. Let's look at an aspect of Jesus' conduct. In the Gospel of John, chapter 18, starting at verse 19. John 18, 19. Again, dealing with a high priest. These high priests, they tell you. Someone want to read 19 to 24? Okay. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoken to them. They know what I have said. What he had said, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way to <laughs> Very similar situation, isn't it? Okay, verse 23. Jesus answered him, I have spoke, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him down to Caiaphas, the high priest. All right. Well, that, apparently that doesn't count as reviling, because he did not revile in return, we are told, in the New Testament. Uh, what Paul is doing here, some commentators, especially those of old, have said uh, he was not acting the way a Christian should act. And, you know, when we're talking about Paul, he, Paul's not Jesus. Paul sinned. <laughs> okay. So we, uh, we just don't know. Was he, was he doing what was right or doing what was wrong? We don't know for sure, though we're going to get a good indication later in this passage. But uh, it's an interesting response that he has. And, of course, it's a truthful response. He didn't lie. <laughs> so whether or not he was talking smack when he shouldn't have been talking smack, he wasn't bearing false witness he was just speaking a sharp word in that moment. And, uh, and it's interesting that it doesn't seem to be very strategic in that moment. So if nothing else, it just seems like, Paul, you're, you're just asking to get your head chopped off here. You know, uh, The smart thing, it seems, would be to just shut up. But instead, he spouts it off and let the chips fall where they may, because God's in charge of the chips, right? So uh, that's the route that he took. But do you guys have any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, righteous indignation. Yeah, what is that? For Ephesians 4, 26, like, be angry to sin not. That's it. And, I mean, like, I don't really know this, but, like, when you said that you basically prophesied, like, later on, you got started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like it's just a prophecy. <laughs> yeah, it's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I could totally imagine, like, you know, being stuck in the mouth, like, I would kind of, like, Oh Oh, yeah! (laughs) Very important to remember. Yeah, what would we do in that situation? I mean, Paul was a a fallen man with vices just like us, and with passions just like us. We would have said something probably far worse, right, (laughs) Diana? So when did he write Romans? That would have been yes. It was before that in Corinth. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote it not long before that, actually. As a matter of fact, Paul was probably 
little break because the Romans were still standing by. Mm-hmm. Being a Roman soldier, they couldn't. I mean, a Roman citizen, they couldn't let them be. Yeah. Actually, if it did it, the Romans would have probably came down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were, they were just standing back right now. Yes. I don't know if they could hear what was said, but if somebody had actually hit Paul, I think they would. Did they actually strike him? Yeah, struck him in the mouth. They weren't down there Right, yeah. Um, so basically what had happened was the Romans went hands off for a while and just said, let us know what you want us to do with them after we do this trial. Just kind of minding the rules uh, for a bit. But while they're here in this court scene, if you want to call it that, they apparently have license to do whatever they want. Uh, there's no real true oversight or enforcement of rules. And Paul brings that up. Uh, you see in verse, uh, the end of verse 3, he says, you're acting contrary to the law by ordering me to be struck. And uh, then they counter back with, now wait a second, you're being contrary to the law because you're speaking against the high priest. And so what we have are a couple references to uh, the law and uh, I don't think we'll have time to turn there. So you, if you're taking notes, you can jot them down. The first thing about uh, not being struck in the middle of a trial, that's Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 and 2, it says that the beating is supposed to come after the guilty verdict. <laughs> the beating doesn't come before the guilty verdict. That's a, a good rule of thumb, just how to live your life. And then the other reference is Exodus, Exodus 22, verse 28. Paul quotes it right there. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so Paul here is saying that, uh, yeah, okay, it says that in the law. I didn't know that he was the high priest, and this is what it says. Paul basically admitting fault there, but also pleading ignorance at the same time. So an interesting situation uh, that everybody finds themselves in, where they're, uh, just as Romans says, we're all guilty under the law, and here they are displaying it uh, in just a matter of uh, moments. So, any other thoughts on that section, verses 1 through 5, before we continue on with the, the narrative? Back in 21, uh, 13, Paul said, I'm ready not only to go back and be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem. So it seemed like he kind of, at this point, thrown caution away Pushes chips all the way and says, yeah. whatever, I'm ready. Yes, that's very good to, to point out. Paul, at this point, had to be thinking this was the end. He's had all kinds of desires that haven't been fulfilled. He doesn't, he doesn't know what's next, but here he is in this situation thinking, I have very, very few cards to play here. Uh, so, you know, what do I have to lose? I'm probably going to die here, and so caution to the wind. Yet, he's getting ready to find out here at the end of this next section, he's getting ready to find out that he's actually going to live through Jerusalem. So let's look at verses 6 through 11. Someone want to read those? Verses 6 through 11. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead, Jim. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say, 
that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. The Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers, Go down, take him by force among them, and bring him back to the barracks. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Okay. So we see at the start of this passage there in verse 6, uh, Paul had an idea so crazy it just had to work. He's looking at the crowd and seeing these Jews aren't all Pharisees, aren't all Sadducees. It's the Sanhedrin. It's a mixed crowd. And it's majority Sadducees. Uh, Paul, knowing the difference between the two, made a plot pretty quickly. And look at verse 8. This is the key here to understanding what's going on. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angels, and no spirits. So uh, if you remember, we've talked about this before, and this is just a good thing to remember because you see it in the Gospels and you see it in the book of Acts. Sadducees deny the resurrection. Okay, Remember that. Have that in your brain. Pharisees believe in a future resurrection. Sadducees don't. And on that ground, they would fight pretty hard. Okay, This is probably more intense than the in-house Christian debates that we have now. This isn't Calvinism versus Arminianism. This isn't uh, you know, necessarily all the minutia of end times. This was a pretty big deal. When they came together in the Sanhedrin, they were able to put that aside for the moment and to work out issues. Unless someone brings it up, apparently. <laughs> so... Paul, uh, recognizing, okay, we got, we got this thing going on where Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees very much do. He cries out in verse 6, it's with respect to the hope of the, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, to a Pharisee, you hear that and you think, well, no one should be on trial for that. We should have hope. Uh, there's a future resurrection. And then the next thing they think in their mind is, Oh, but the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. They're the ones that want this guy dead because he believes something right. Well, let's start fighting with each other. And you can see where the conversation goes. In verse 9, it says the Pharisees' party, uh, some of them, and the Pharisees' party stood up and said, there's nothing wrong with this man. Well, Paul won them over pretty quickly, didn't he? And then they go, go as far to say, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in spirits or angels. And so now they're all tangled up, mixed up, confused, fighting, bickering back and forth. Uh, so what, what an ordeal. Now, some things to remember <clears throat> historically and contextually. There was a formal break of Christians from Judaism sometime after this time. Remember, Christians, when they were first getting saved, Jews who became Christians were seen as Jews still. Christianity was considered by many just another denomination within Judaism. And that formal break that Christianity really is separate from Judaism didn't really happen until the end of the first century. As we look back in history, they aren't super distinguished until much later on. And we see some evidence of this in uh, Paul's language here in verses 6 through 11. 
Um, Notice that Paul says, again in verse 6, brothers. I had you take note of that in verse 1, and here he is again in verse 6 saying brothers. And he doesn't say, I used to be a Pharisee. He doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. Now that's interesting, isn't it? I am a Pharisee. Paul, 12 years on into his Christian life, says, I am a Pharisee. When Sadducees would get saved back in in that day, Sadducees had to forsake all of their identity with that sect because they denied the resurrection. You couldn't be a Christian who says, I am a Sadducee. Because when you say, I'm a Christian, you believe in the resurrection of Christ. When you say, I am a Sadducee, you say there is no resurrection. You can't be both. But with a Pharisee, they believed in the resurrection. They obviously cared very much for God's word. They intensely studied God's word. And so his identity as a Pharisee carried on to a degree, even to this point, as he says in the present tense, I am a Pharisee. It was about four years later when Paul ends up in Rome, he writes the book of Philippians. And let's turn there to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and see how he talks about his uh, identity in that book. So about a four-year separation between Acts 23 and Philippians. Let's look at verses 4 to 11. Great passage of Scripture. Someone want to read verses 4 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3? Who's got it? Philippians 4, or Philippians 3, 4 to 11. Okay, go ahead, Joseph. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then also will be revealed within... I think you might be in Colossians. Oh, Philippians 3. <laughs> hey, that's a good passage too. It's just not as pertinent to this study. 4 through 11. So chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Oh, sorry. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. For whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. All right, so look at how he speaks of his pedigree. He goes through all these titles tribe of Benjamin, Hebrews of Hebrews, Pharisee, etc. Verse 7 Whatever gain I had, past tense, I counted, past tense, as loss for the sake of Christ. And he says, present tense, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of Christ. So there does seem to be a shift in the way he describes his identity from Acts 23 before the Sanhedrin 
to Philippians chapter 3, four years later, where he's saying, I am a Pharisee to, I've counted that as loss. See that? So uh, before, the, before the council there, he's sharing his identity as a Pharisee, and to the Philippians he writes that he's counted that as rubbish, as dung. Past tense, it's behind him. So it's an interesting thing. And we find Paul in Acts 23 in a real desperate spot, of course. And so he plays the let's pit them against each other card. And he says, I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection. And then the Pharisees jump on his side. Division, in fact, did occur just as Paul wanted it to occur. And uh, we have to ask the question now because we asked it in the first section. Is this too surprising for a Christian to act this way in such a situation? Is this Christ-like or unchrist-like to pit people against each other in such a moment? Uh, of course, we have the uh, comfort of not enduring any persecution as we sit in this climate-controlled room, and we can be uh, armchair quarterbacks. But uh, what, what do we think of what Paul has done here? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it does almost seem like because there are some in the Pharisees' party who stand up, again, this is verse 9, they stand up and defend Paul, saying, We find nothing wrong in this man. You remember when Jesus told that one scribe, You're not far from the kingdom of God? It almost has that kind of vibe to it there, where it's like, Oh, are you guys getting it? Do you get it? Do you really think there's nothing wrong in Paul? Maybe they're close. I mean, the Sadducees, of course, were in a much worse position theologically, presupposing that the resurrection of Christ would be impossible. Pharisees didn't presuppose that. And then there they were defending the resurrection in that moment. Interesting situation. Very interesting. Could we say that we would act any differently than Paul? We would probably say worse things. We would probably have worse strategies. We would be, we would be acting dumber, and our heads would have rolled by this point. So, uh, yeah, criticizing Paul is probably not the best route for us to take. But it is interesting. I want to, okay, then what? Ten years since Paul was a Pharisee? Yeah, at least ten. It's probably more like 12 or 13. There may have been a few of them still left from that first group. The original is a new hymn. The zeal he had at that time and what he was doing to persecute the church. And then there were yeah, stories of course. repeated and repeated. Man, you want to say a Pharisee, a Pharisee, you want to check out Paul mm-hmm. before he became a Bible That's right. He was zealous for Judaism before he was zealous for Christ. Yeah. Melissa? Yeah, that's right. And we really don't have a lot of detail as to how much everybody was interacting, what rooms they were in, who was there and who was where. and uh, Yeah, 
So it is chaos, though. That's our, that's our safe understanding of this. Is It was really chaos because no one was on the same page. And it worked out for Paul because uh, it says that the tribune stepped in when the dissension became violent. He thought Paul was going to be torn to pieces, it says. <laughs> so uh, that means it's pretty chaotic in there. And he found a safe space for Paul. He got him out of there and found him a safe place in the, in the barracks. And then there he is, alone in the barracks, and Jesus shows up. Isn't that sweet? There's Paul. And what's he thinking before Jesus shows up? You know, we were just talking about how he, his mind was probably in the place of, I'm going to die here. Uh, this is the end. And, you know, nothing's going the way I had thought it was going to go, but this is what the Lord has for me. And then he sees Jesus. The Lord stood by him or over him. It could be translated either way there. And uh, gives him certainty by saying, you've testified about me here in Jerusalem, and it's also going to happen in Rome. Now, wouldn't you just feel bulletproof if you were Paul? <laughs> Jesus tells you that, and then it's like, okay, well, uh, nothing bad is going to happen to me here to the point where I'll die. I'm going to make it to Jerusalem. Jesus just told me. And now he has certainty about his mission. And this, of course, isn't the first time that Jesus has encouraged Paul. Turn with me back to chapter 18, Acts 18, verse 9. This is Paul in Corinth. And remember, his plans were frustrated in Corinth. He went to the synagogue, and uh, that wasn't working. <laughs> he wasn't having many converts there in Corinth. And then... Uh, he went to the house next to the synagogue and the Lord appeared to him one night, it says in verse 9, in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. How comforting that must have been to Paul at that point. And then look at uh, chapter 22 on your way back to 23. Chapter 22, verse 17. 17 and 18. From last week. Paul said when he had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, he fell into a trance and saw him saying to him, Make haste and I will and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Paul recounting a time when the Lord had appeared to him, comforting him. We can also think of maybe another place or two in the New Testament where the Lord comforted Paul, spoke to Paul. Anything coming to mind? Yeah, Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? Paul pleaded with the Lord three times for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away. And the Lord appeared to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power, my strength is made perfect in weakness. How comforting it must have been for Paul. Uh, but this is a place, too, to remind you that narrative is not always normative. Okay, So, when you go home tonight and you say your prayers before bed, don't expect to see Jesus standing over you. Narrative is not always normative. Paul was an apostle. Paul had very unique experiences as an apostle. He was uniquely commissioned by Jesus. Even among all the apostles, Jesus was uniquely commissioned among them as an apostle. And so his ministry was unique. His experiences, his interactions with Jesus are unique. But 
uh, we can see from this verse, perhaps, that uh, these moments where we are tempted to second-guess Paul's actions when he spoke back to the high priest and when he got the crowd uh, pitted against one another, we can see from this verse that perhaps he didn't do anything wrong because he receives no rebuke from Jesus. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, Paul, cool your jets, I got this. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He, did, he doesn't say, Paul, uh, really, you need to talk nicer to those guys. But he says, take courage. It's the same thing that we hear when uh, Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples get scared. He says, take courage. When he's talking to the disciples and says, in this world you'll have much tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Same phrase. It's a comforting interaction that he has with Jesus. And he gives him certainty about his future uh, that he will go on to Rome. And we can also learn from this, to a degree at least, we could say, how Jesus considers our efforts on his behalf. He comes alongside Paul, comforts him, and says, take courage. He's with him. And when we are bold for Christ, do you think Jesus is going to be there for us to comfort us and to encourage us? Yes, certainly. He's with us always, even into the end of the age. And we are commissioned to go out and to bear his name and to proclaim his gospel. And... Uh, this is, this is pretty neat, the interaction that Paul had with his Lord. Jim. Do you think when Paul stirred up a controversy, maybe he was hoping that he'd get an opportunity to, to talk to him, to, to say why he's being persecuted for the resurrection? Yeah. And he could bring up, he could take that into the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, that would certainly be consistent with Paul's actions up to this point, because he was always asking for a moment to speak. Uh, yeah, if you look back at, to the end of chapter 21, uh, verse 37, Paul was brought into the barracks, or about to be brought into the barracks. He said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? And Paul said, it's all Greek to me. No, Paul says, uh, verse 38, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt, etc., etc.? Paul goes on to say, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. That was what Paul was always wanting to do. You can think back to Mars Hill. You can think back to the synagogues where if anyone has a word of encouragement, stand up. Acts 13. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, brothers, listen to me. He was always looking for a moment to speak. And so I think that's a real possibility with what he was trying to do there. Uh, the Lord used it the way he saw fit and, and brought... Brought it all about. Pretty amazing. And just a side note: the Sadducees were the group in power. They had been for quite some right. time. And I'm pretty sure Ananias was a Sadducee. Hmm. So Paul was not going to receive anything favorable uh, as far as being able to talk about Jesus mm -hmm. without getting somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. If he was thinking strategically. Uh, his team just got a lot bigger if he could win all the Pharisees to his team. So, yep, for sure. Well, let's look at verses 12 to 15 to close this out. Uh, we'll start this next section of the story and finish that and the whole chapter next week. But someone want to read chapters 12 or verses 12 to 15? 12 to 15. Who's got it? Mike, go ahead. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and about found themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
there were more than 40 who made the conspiracy. That they went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. All right. Things have gotten serious, more and more serious. And there were 40 hungry men, and what did they want to do? No, they wanted to eat. Uh, they were hungry. <laughs> so, so yeah, killing Paul was just the means to the end of getting that food. And their true colors are starting to show now, aren't they? Uh, we, we can see glimpses of it throughout. They want to kill Paul. They want to kill Paul. But here they are coming together, a concerted effort, you could call it collusion. It's collusion coming together to orchestrate the situation so that Paul would be dead. Now, what did Jesus just tell Paul? <laughs> You're not going to die here, right? You're going to Rome. Now, Paul's going to hear about this interaction in the next verses, and we'll look at that next week. But Paul has the certainty that he's going to make it to Rome, and these men have no certainty. These men are of the world. These men do, don't know the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus didn't visit these men. The Lord Jesus didn't tell these men Paul is going to make it to Rome. They have no connection to the God of the universe, their maker. And so here they are plotting in vain. Scripture talks about that. Why do the peoples plot in vain? Isn't that in your Bible? Here they are, devising a vain thing, not knowing King Jesus, and they're about to fail. And they weren't really interested in truth. They weren't really interested in love. They were interested in achieving their own ends by maintaining their way of life because Paul was upsetting their way of life. Paul was exerting an influence in the culture. God was using him to exert an influence in the culture that was a godly influence, that was turning people away from their religion and causing them to embrace Jesus. They weren't really interested in truth. They just held court, but they weren't interested in truth. Sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? They're, they talk about truth, science, right? Follow the science. It's all about science. Knowledge is what that word means. Tell me how transgenderism is knowledge. But they say it's knowledge. They say it's science. They're not interested in truth. Love. How often do we hear about love these days? Love, love, love. And executive orders that are signed to force people to do things they don't want to do. That's not love. So they talk about truth and they talk about love, but that's not what they want. So just like our culture today, you've got these people showing their true colors under the guise of truth, under the guise of love. That's not what it is. They were interested in cutting off Paul because he was a godly influencer. And perhaps we're going to see that more and more in our culture today. The cutting off of influencers who go against these people who want their particular way. They want to continue in their rebellion against God. They want to continue in their suppression of truth in unrighteousness. And for someone to come along and to disrupt that, well, he's got to go. And we, you know, don't read the Bible and look at this and say, those barbarians in the first century, they wanted to kill somebody. Well, it was less than 100 years ago that Jews were being put in stoves. All right, less than 100 years. 
So, uh, just like our culture today, there is a war against godliness, a war against holiness, a war against what's right, uh, as God has declared it. And we must be prepared that those godly influencers who are out front, who have been championed so long in this nation, are going to be judged by this nation in a kangaroo court of our own. Because uh, they're not interested in truth, are they? Yeah. People have been declared guilty before the trial. Jim? How did the Sadducees... I, I just don't understand how they came to be because they, they, they're almost atheists. I mean, uh, they don't believe in an afterlife, <laughs> the spirit, the resurrection. Uh, yeah, they were the Episcopalians of the Jews. They thought the only thing God would do is bless them in this life. And then, but then some of them obviously didn't even believe that because they didn't keep any of his laws. (laughs) Well, this is something I've, I've started to see more and more. I know it's happened since the time of Christ, since before the time of Christ. But I'm becoming more and more aware of it. That there are so many people out there who view religion as just a game. And for the Sadducees, that's all it was. It was a a means for power. A means for social acceptance. A means for influence. It's just a game. God and his judgment wasn't real. It was just a game. Uh, I see that a lot when you do any kind of apologetics with people. When you seek to discover truth with somebody. And as a Christian, you're revealing the capital T truth to somebody. But you're engaging with somebody, and you'll start to pick up, uh, whether it's a Latter-day Saint, Jehovah's Witness, whoever it may be, is this even real to you, or are you just wanting to play a game with me? When you go to bed tonight, are you really thinking that there's the Lord of all the universe who may demand your soul of you? You're not. It's all just a game. And I think the Sadducees were there in that headspace. It was just a social construct. And, uh, and a means of power. And I can't help but think of the church in Jerusalem. You remember it was just a couple chapters before. Paul was meeting with James. Remember that? And uh, James says, we got some guys who are under an oath. So shave your head, go into the temple, do all the purification stuff with them. Uh, James was there in Jerusalem. Certainly there were some Gentiles who got saved, but probably largely Jewish converts to Christianity were all there in Jerusalem. And Paul's in Jerusalem. But that church can't do anything to help Paul right now. And how painful would that be for everybody? Paul longed for them, certainly. They longed for Paul, certainly. Uh, but they can't help him. And the Sanhedrin wasn't going after James. The Sanhedrin wasn't going after the church yet. They were going after Paul. They started at the top. They started with the most influential, the one who was making the biggest waves in that place. And so when persecution comes, it starts that way. You start with the big guy and you hope to scare all the little guys. (laughs) That's the way it goes. And uh, God's got other plans, though. He's going to send Paul on to Rome and he's going to keep building his church. And that's what makes the book of Acts beautiful and the life that we live as members of God's body. Very, very beautiful. That he does all the work and he's in control of all this. So, Other thoughts or questions as we... Wrap up here. Got a few minutes left. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, if you look at Nazi Germany, when they were holding trials uh, to determine whether someone was innocent or guilty, um, those were called kangaroo courts because Nazi Germany had a very specific agenda and it wasn't to discover truth. It was to exterminate Jews. So no matter what the trial would reveal, the outcome was always going to be kill the Jews. So that's, that's what's going on here. Uh, they held trial, but the outcome was already determined. So it wasn't a it wasn't a fair trial, it wasn't a real trial. Right. Which were all illegal. Every one of them broke the Jewish law one uh -huh. way or another. And, uh, and so, and, you know, the fair, the, not the fair, the same Hebrew, high priest, were all involved in all of them. Yes. And so, uh, it, it had many, the, obviously, the same Hebrew had become very corrupt uh -huh. for, quite, for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, it shows their heart. When those things happen, uh, they don't really care about godliness. They don't care about holiness. What they care about is getting what they want. Um, yeah, lawless people reveal their hearts. Anything else? Even outside of the book of Acts, church stuff, Bible stuff, we got three minutes. You can ask anything you want. I just thought it was funny. Like the Sadducees and the Pharisees kind of remind me of like Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> Pharisees are the Republicans, right? Yeah. We're a little more comfortable with that, maybe. Yeah, they were. Yeah, except today both parties tend to be more like the Zealots. Uh, uh, there was another sect of the Jews. Peter, uh, John and James, the sons of thunder, very zealous. Uh, after the book of Acts, this will probably go until uh, May at some point, um, the book of Acts will, on Wednesday nights. We're eventually going to get to First and Second Peter. That's going to be our next verse-by-verse -verse study. Um, we may do something in between. We may go right into First and Second Peter, but just so you know, that's, that's where we're headed. Um, we have... Six and a half chapters left, so probably going to take uh, two to three months. And then First and Second Peter, which is about living for Christ under persecution. So, yeah, yep, that'll be a good reminder for us. Okay, very well. Dean, you want to close us in prayer?